Good morning, everybody. Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 1, 4 to 14. But we're just going to start just on the second part of verse 3. After making purification for sins, speaking of Jesus, of course, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, when I ask people, what's the first thing that came to your mind when you hear the word angel? Um, believe it or not, the most popular answer was Shaggy. Um, Mr. Lover Lover himself. I won't sing the song to you. A lot of you are just like staring at me like, who is Shaggy? Um, you're better off not knowing. Um, one person said Robbie Williams. I was surprised by that. Um, th- there wasn't more. Um, there was a lot of chat of uh, children, uh, well-behaved children. Oh, they're like a wee angel. Uh, or even a sleeping baby, even better. They're an angel. Um, some Valentine's Day chat a lot of chubby babies and, I don't know, uh, feathery wings and things like that. Um, did we Google search? I uh, just put in angel as the first image that came up. For pages, this was really, all the images were basically this image. A white person with blonde hair, uh, feathery wings, always on a cloud, uh, a halo, an aura, white robes. Um, or you'd get an image like this one, which is like a baby or a little, little kid with a nightie on and, and wings. And, a, and a, that, you know, she's a wee angel. Um, got a little more specific, and I was like, okay, let me search for Gabriel. And this is a, a painting that came up for Gabriel. Um, I'll get into this in a minute, but anytime angels appear in Scripture, they always need to say, fear not, because they're powerful and Something about them is, is just magnificent. I don't know if I'd be afraid of this, Gabriel. Uh, maybe just if they if, you know, just uh, popped up, it'd be fine. But um, I think I could take that, Gabriel. Um, not that manly of a man, but, you know. Um, had a hard time really coming up with um, many things in the Bible that our culture has shaped more than our, the ideal of kind of angels and demons in that way. Uh, one angel 
on your shoulder. The other has a, a demon. The demon's red pitchfork, um, a bit cooler than like the goofy one, tripping over its robes. Uh, it's just what kind of came to my mind. A um, few kind of material or uh, kind of characters in the Bible that uh, our culture has adapted more than angels and demons and, and therefore have kind of shaped our under- understanding of, uh, of who or what they are. But it seems uh, the audience to uh, this letter here couldn't have had a more opposite view of angels than, than we've seen or that we kind of have. Uh, they seem to hold angels in a high, high regard. Um, they seem to maybe even been in awe of their power, um, their role in God's redemptive purposes. Um, we can't say for certain why the author is writing uh, about angels here, but it, it seems that the audience may have been giving angels maybe undue credit Uh, possibly even attributing to them a role in their salvation. Uh, So in some ways it seems, hey, maybe they have a bit of a skewed idea of what angels are, who angels are. In some ways they have uh, maybe a a more robust angelology than we do, or kind of anemic chubby baby uh, kind of flying around version of, of angels. Because uh, scriptures, when they talk about angels, they're, they, they are magnificent, they are powerful beings. Uh, but remember the, the point of this letter to the Hebrews, the point is that Jesus is better, that, that he's more excellent, he's more supreme than, than anything or anyone, including angels. Uh, remember the audience, they have a strong understanding of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, um, and, and we're actually told in Scripture that angels played a significant role in the giving and the communicating of the, of the law of Moses to the people of Israel. Um, it's, you know, through the Old Testament, you see angels communicating God's message. Uh, they're, they're guiding and leading and protecting the people. Uh, Galatians 3.19, uh, Paul says the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. He's talking about Moses there, but you know, God came with, with uh uh, thousands of, of holy ones, Deuteronomy says. Um, Acts 7.53, uh, you who uh, receive the law is delivered by angels. We'll see next week, uh, chapter 2, uh, says the message of the old covenant was declared by angels. Um, so perhaps there, there may have even been confusion for them uh, of whether the, this new covenant that Jesus brings is it maybe less superior to the old covenant because it wasn't delivered by kind of angel mediation? Perhaps were the angels themselves even more superior to Jesus? Whatever the reason uh, for needing to write this, um, the author's purpose is the same. His point is this, uh, to establish the superiority of Jesus to the angels, that that he is better than them, he is more superior than them, He's more excellent than them. Um, to help us understand, I thought maybe give you a bit of five-minute uh, angelology. I, I don't know if many people have heard a sermon on angels or have, maybe this is your, your, your idea of what angels are. Maybe it is kind of Valentine's Day. So let me give us just a quick uh, kind of five minutes on, on what angel, the biblical view of angels are. Uh, that word angel or angelos uh, occurs 34 in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, that word is used in the New Testament 165 times, 108 times in the Old Testament. That, that's a lot of mentions. It's a significant mention of, of these angelic beings in the Bible. Uh, we tend to just kind of ignore that or skip over it, but it's significant. Um, angels, like humans, were created uh, at a point in time, so they're not eternal. Um, each angel is a direct creation 
of God. That is to say, they didn't descend from like an original pair like humans did. Um, Angels don't procreate. Matthew 22, 28 to 30 uh, teaches us that. Uh, We don't know when angels were created, but um, it's probably before the events of Genesis 1. Uh, They must have been created righteous and upright because God doesn't directly create evil. Um, it's passages like Revelations 12, uh, Colossians 1, it really implies that there was an original act of rebellion, so Satan rebels and, and uh, takes with him a number of fallen angels. Um, what are angels like? Uh, we know they are intelligent, uh, but they're not omniscient like God is. They don't know everything like God does. Uh, 1 Peter 1.12 speaks of our salvation as something that angels long to look. They, they long to understand what's been uh, achieved fully, what's been accomplished. So they don't know all. Uh, you see angels experience emotion. So they, they sing, they, they shout for joy. Uh, you see angels exercise their wills. So they're not mindless robots. Uh, they, they have minds and emotions and, and wills. Uh, we know that angels are, are spirit beings, so they're immaterial uh, they have no flesh or bones or, or blood. Um, the text, the text uh, today, verse 14, uh, teaches us they're ministering spirits. Um, although they're spirits, they have spatial limitations. Uh, you see this in Daniel. They're not omnipresent like God is. They're, they're in one place at one time. Uh, we see in Scripture that they are, they are very powerful, so they're able to appear. Imagine if that happened uh, right now. Uh, an angel appears um, you see them appear in, uh, in, in human form. Uh, so Gabriel appears to Zechariah and Mary. Uh, you see angels appear uh, as humans uh, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Nearly everyone an angel appears to in Scripture, though, uh, strikes fear. So there's, there's maybe even loss of consciousness. Um, they bring uh, great fear when they appear. Um, although they're, they're powerful, they're not omnipotent like God is. Um, so their power is, is subject to God's power, God's purposes. They, 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 they serve, uh, they're empowered by Him in that way. Uh, Genesis 21, angels are used to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In 2 Kings 19, uh, you have this instance where one angel is empowered to, to take out 185 Assyrians. That's, that's pretty powerful. Um, as for their position... In Scripture, you see uh, two moral categories for angels. So there's holy or elect angels, uh, Mark 8, 38, 1 uh, 1 Timothy 5, 21. But you also see evil uh, uh, demons and uh, fallen angels in that way, Luke 8, 2. Um, Evidently, after the rebellion and fall of Satan, uh, all angels were were confirmed in their moral state. Um, So what this means is, is God preserves the elect and the holy angels uh, but he, he will not redeem the evil ones in that way. Um, one of the reasons we kind of deny the, the redemption of, of fallen angels and demons is because, for one reason, there's no record of any such in Scripture. Uh, there's no record of, of any kind of de- demonic repentance uh, in Scripture. Uh, whenever we read about the impact of the cross on demons, it's always judgment. It's never salvation uh, nowhere do you read of justification or forgiveness, redemption, adoption, or, or regeneration being true of any angelic being. Um, that's reserved for humans. So you're going to see next week uh, that Jesus partook human flesh and blood. So he came to, 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 to help the offspring of, of Abraham, not, not angels. Um, how many angels are there? We don't know the answer to that question. We can say a lot. So a multitude announced Jesus' birth in Luke 2. 
Psalm 46, God is the Yahweh of, of, of hosts of angels. He says he's the, he's the head over a vast army of angels. Uh, Jesus refers to 12 legions of angels in Matthew 26. So a legion is 6,000, so that'd be 72,000 angels. Um, through the scripture, in Job and in Psalms and Revelation, uh, angels are often associated with, with the stars. So that leads some scholars to think maybe the, the angels and the stars are equal in number. You think you kind of get into like, well, we just don't know. Um, scripture, including the text today, says angels are commissioned by God to, to serve or to minister Christians, possibly even an angel being the guardian of, of, of each Christian. Um, no text says that this is the job of every angel. So in Revelation 4, it seems that some many angels never leave the throne of God. They're just attending the throne, worshiping nonstop. Uh, it seems their number is fixed, so they don't procreate. We've established that. They don't die. Um, the answer to how many there are is, is lots, is all we can say. Um, what do they do? Uh, they worship and they serve God. That's their purpose. Uh, we see that in the text today. We see that in Psalm 103. Uh, it says angels do God's word. They obey the voice of his word. They do his will. Uh, they provide guidance and direction for God's people. Uh, they guard and protect. We see that in Scripture. Revelation 12, you see uh, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, Satan, and his angels. Pretty, pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? Um, pretty, pretty more robust than what we, our Valentine's Day kind of uh, idea of, of angels are. Pretty powerful, pretty majestic. Uh, you can almost understand why the audience to this letter uh, may have kind of elevated their opinion of angels, why they may have even veered into angel worship. That seems kind of silly to us, but, it, but it's not silly. Um, you see that in John 22, where the apostle John, after being, seeing this revelation, he falls down at an angel's feet and begins to worship him, and the angel says, get up, like, don't worship me, I'm a servant like you, worship God. So there's this, maybe this temptation when you have this robust view of angels to, to offer them thanks, to offer them uh, praise. So the passage, the purpose of the passage is to make it unmistakably clear that Jesus is better than angels. As, as impressive as they may be, Jesus is superior to them in every meaning and relevant respect. Um, remember what we looked at last week, the, the introduction to this letter showed us that God has, has spoken, he's revealed himself fully in his son, Jesus Christ, uh, we get those seven reasons why Jesus is better. And those reasons, they, they build and build and they climax in verse 3 when it says Jesus sat down at the right hand of God on high. It, it, it climaxes at his, his royal status, his, his position. And then verse 4 really is this transition verse into this topic of Jesus' superiority to the angels. Uh, let's read that we section again. Uh, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, after making purification for sins, what do we should be thinking about there? We should be thinking about the cross, okay? That's, that's, that's how Jesus purified sins, that once and for all sacrifice on the cross. Uh, you should be thinking his death, his burial, but also his resurrection. Um, so he has, he has defeated death. He is victorious over sin and death itself. Um, but also the next verse 
doesn't stop at his resurrection. It goes into his ascension. So he, Jesus is exalted and he is, ascends and he sits at the right hand of God on high. That, that's, that's our focus uh, in, in this passage. It, it's this, this status that he has been given, this royal status, this exaltation. And, 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 and in order to, to explain this or to make his point, the author goes back into that comparison again. He's going to compare uh, this, he's going to contrast this exalted son of God who sits on the throne with the angels. This, this lowly, humble servant, God-man Jesus, we see has moved to this position of power and, and authority and governance above the status of the angels. How much greater is his position than theirs? Verse 4 says, as much superior as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Um, that word again, superior, more excellent, better, that's, we're gonna, that's the word we're going to hear over and over again, that he's, he's better than everyone else. He's better than anything else. And to make that point, he specifically says that the name he has inherited is, is better. It's more excellent. It's, it's, it's more superior to the angel's name. Let's explain what that means. What does he mean by him inheriting the name? Um, that word name it, it's unama. It's translated as 20, it, uh, it's used 20, 229 times in the Bible, a lot. And it, it usually refers to the person's, not, not the name you've been given, but, but, it's the, but the title, the, the rank, the status that you've been given. So Jesus inheriting a better name, he's saying that he's, he's inherited a, a, a greater rank, a greater status, a more excellent name than theirs. Uh, there's a few, few passages on the screen to kind of help us understand. Uh, Ephesians 1, Paul says of the great might that God worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's our focus again. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus and then him being seated at his, uh, his right hand. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Um, next one, Philippians 2. Uh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the, the, the name is, has given him a, a position of authority, of power, of dominion, of rule, above every other name. So that Paul continues in verse 10 that, that at that name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Human knees, demon knees, angel knees, all will bow and confess this name. Jesus is, is, is Lord of all. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and given a name that is above every other name. All will bow down and worship him. And the question then is, well, what's the name? What name has he been uh, given? Uh, look at the previous three verses. We looked at those last week. He's talking, last week he's introducing this idea that, that God spoke to us by his son and then the rest of those passages, these seven reasons why Jesus, the son, is better and the, 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 the rest of chapter two is talking about the same. So most scholars say, and I agree, that the, the title, the name in verse four is son. Jesus is the Son of God, exalted to the right hand and worthy of praise. 
that can be a bit confusing because in your mind you might be thinking, well, was He not the Son before? Was Jesus not the Son and then He became the Son? Or even that language of, of Him becoming more superior to the angels, does that, does that imply that He was before inferior to the angels? It's an important, important question. Um, if, you, if you answer this question wrong, you're going to end up in a, in a different religion than Christianity. Um, so let's try to answer it as simply as possible. The answer is no. The God, uh, God has always been uh, this, the Son of God. He wasn't not the Son of God, and then He became the Son of God. The author cannot mean that um, because he's established that in the previous verses. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Jesus spoke creation into being. He's the one who, subs- who sustains and upholds the universe with His power. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. The verses to come speak of His is eternality, that he's, he's, he's there speaking uh, creation at the beginning, uh, verse 10 says, and then he's also with no end. So this is, the, the author is, is, is firm on Jesus' deity, that Jesus is eternally the Son of God. And um, even when you get back into the, uh, the Gospels, before the cross, before his, his, his exaltation to the, to, the, to the throne, even then God relates to him as his son. So Jesus' baptism, he's baptized, the Spirit falls on him, and the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus' transfiguration, the, the disciples hear the Father say, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus has, has always been God's son. Um, so what does it mean by Jesus inheriting the name or becoming more excellent the context here, I, I think, I firmly believe that he's speaking about Christ's resurrection from the dead and subsequent exaltation. And um, look at the text again in, in Philippians 2. I think I have more on the screen there. So verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name. Um, anytime you hear the word therefore, stop reading and, and go back and see what he's talking about. So something happened, therefore he's done this. So you go back and, and what Paul's talking about, he's given this, this beautiful poetic description of the incarnation. The, the son, this pre-existent son of God leaving the heavenly realms and coming down to earth. And he says, Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this is the one who spoke creation into being. He humbles himself. He, he comes down lowly. He becomes a servant He's obedient to the point of death on a cross. And remember the gospel, what happened on the cross, he, he was killed, he was buried, but then he raised again gloriously from, from uh, defeating death. It's the best news you've ever heard. Therefore, verse 9 says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him this name. Jesus was exalted and bestowed the name because of his resurrection. So Philippians 2 shows us that God the Son became human. He took on human flesh, and He entered this period of of humiliation, of lowliness, of servanthood, of obedience to the point of death. 
but he didn't stay dead, right? He was gloriously raised to life, and the result of that resurrection is he is now highly exalted, and God has bestowed on him the, the highest status in the name of all. And Jesus has moved from humiliation to exaltation, and the result of that was the Father gave him the name above all names. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 1.4. It's on the screen. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Kind of can't make it more clear than that. It's not that he became the Son. It's that he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. So it's because of his resurrection He's declared to be not just Son of God, but Son of God in power now. So Jesus, God's Son from eternity's past, because of His resurrection and defeat of death, has been declared to be Son of God in power for all to know and to see and one day to bow down and praise His name. It's the, this, the status that He's been given. So when Jesus comes again, He won't come riding on a donkey like he did into Jerusalem, he comes on a war horse. He comes in power. Does that make sense of him inheriting that name? That's, that's the writer's point. That's, verse four is the thesis statement, that Jesus is far better than the angels as the name he has inherited is far superior to theirs. And then in verses five to 14, he, he gives evidence to that point that Jesus is better than the angels by quoting seven Old Testament passages Six of the seven are direct uh, quotes from the Psalms, which they would have been very familiar with, probably memorized as their hymn book. Um, and, and listen, what's really interesting about the way he quotes these Old Testament passages is, is who he seems to be quoting. I found this amazing. So Jesus and Paul both use this technique of, in a way to, to, to make their point, kind of overwhelming their audience with Old Testament scriptures. And Paul does this, and, and he's like, here's my point, and he gives all these Old Testament passages to, to show that this is true, that this is true, that of the Old Covenant always been pointing to this new thing. And, but anytime Paul and Jesus use that technique of quoting Scripture, they always say what Moses said, or, or David said, or, or the, the, the prophets say. But that's not what the author does here. He's quoting these passages as coming directly from the lips of God. That's his point in, in, in verse one, that, that God is speaking. In the Old Testament, it may have been through the prophets, but it's God speaking. It's him breathing out the words. What an amazing uh, kind of view of, of, of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, let's quickly look at these reasons he gives why Jesus is better, specifically here, better than the angels. Seven Old Testament passages, we'll look at them in pairs. Jesus is better than the angels. Verse five, uh, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, which of the angels has God ever said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? Uh, these are rhetorical questions. They're, the answer is meant to be obvious to the audience. Well, none, no angel has God ever said these things to and his first point is Jesus is superior to the angels because of his unique relationship with the Father. So he's, he's pointing again to Jesus' sonship here. It's because Jesus is the Son of God that he is higher than the angels. Um, you, do, you do have um, 
Sometimes the angels collectively being called the sons of God, but, but never is one of them singled out and called the son of God. They're never bestowed this name, son of God, uh, in this way. Uh, that first quote, you are my son, today I've begotten you, that's Psalm 2, 7. And the exact, that exact scripture, exact scripture was also quoted in, in Acts 13, 33, and, and in reference to, to Jesus' resurrection, that God has raised him from the dead and said, um, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Um, it, 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 that's the context. Keep that in your mind. Resurrection, exaltation. Even that word firstborn in verse 6, it, it's, it's used in the New Testament to refer to the resurrection, that, that Jesus didn't become the Son of God. He was the, the firstborn begotten from the dead in this way, and as a result, given this name. Uh, that second quotation is from Second Samuel 7.14. Um, in, in that passage, the prophet Nathan is delivering God's uh, covenant to David, where God promises that it's going to be David's, uh, one of David's sons, his family line, that, that is going to be this, this king who will sit on the royal throne forever and ever. He has a kingdom that will never end. The author is saying that neither of these things has God ever said to an angel. He, he only says this to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, which makes him superior to the angels who were not bestowed that name, this title. The second reason Jesus is better than the angels is because they worship and serve him. Uh, verses 6 and 7 Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, this is Jesus, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Uh, when I read that, my, I, I immediately kind of went to like nativity scene, uh, Jesus coming into the world um, as a baby, uh, this kind of host of angels heralding his, 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 uh, his coming. Uh, could be what uh, the author's referring to. Um, a lot of scholars just say he's actually talking about maybe the, the, the second coming of, of Christ. Um, remember, he's, he, he's, he's resurrection, exaltation to the right hand of God, and then him coming again into the world. Um, that's possibly a clear, a more clear phrasing of that verse, uh, of verse six. A more clear phrasing would be, and when, we, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. This, this magnificent picture of, of Jesus returning in power and the angels worshiping him as he does so. Whichever it is, it doesn't really matter that, because the author's point is the exact same, that, that Jesus doesn't worship the angels, they worship him. Um, and not only do they, they worship him, they also serve him. So verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his, angel win, his angels wins and his ministers a flame of fire. He's quoting Psalm 104 there. So it's the angels that carry out his plans. It's the angels that are the, the messengers and the, and the ministers that are revealing his will, that are announcing key moments of his plan. They, they serve him and they worship him. Makes it obvious that they are, their subordination to the Son is, is pretty clear here. They worship the Son, they are servants and ministers in that way. Um, and I love what he does uh, with this point and the next point. He contrasts them again. So if the angel's role is to, to be a worshiper, to be servants, he, he, he makes his point that Jesus is better by then in the next section looking at Jesus' role. So their role is to, he's contrasting their jobs again. Their job is to worship and to serve and we see in verses 8 to 12 that the son's role is to reign and to rule forever. That's our third reason. Jesus' reason, 
uh, the reason Jesus is superior to the angels is because he reigns and he rules forever. Let me just read those, past, the, the, those verses again, 8 to 12. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, he's talking to Jesus here, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. It's an amazing passage about Jesus there. And it's, it's two quotes, verses 8 and 9. He's quoting Psalm 45. And, and in that section, he's talking about Jesus' status as divine, eternal, and appointed king. And in the next section, in verses 10 to 12, he's quoting Psalm 102. And, and he's, pointing, he's pointing out that Jesus' role is to be the creator and the terminator of the cosmos, not in like an I'll be back kind of way, but he's the one who will just roll it all up in the end while he remains forever. It's an amazing section. And really that, that section highlights three main things. Jesus' authority, his eternality, and his deity. Uh, firstly, his authority. He has a throne, he has a scepter, he has a kingdom in verse 8. He has authority to, to lay the foundation of the earth he molds the heavens with his hands in verse 10. Secondly, Jesus is eternal. Um, he, is pro- he's the, he is the promised heir of David whose kingdom will last forever in verse 8. Verse 10, Jesus was there at the beginning speaking creation into being. In verse 12, we see his years will have no end. He remains the same forever. I, that, that's one of my favorite sections that... that beautiful poetic language of of creation being billions of years old and it fading away while Jesus remains the same. That that creation, the heavens and the earth, to to Jesus, they're like a dirty shirt that you change. They're, They're like a robe that he'll just roll up. But he stays the same forever. Thirdly, that these verses show us that he's in fact divine, that he is God. Look at verse eight. Um, but of the Son, he says, that word of means to as well. You can, you can say it either way. And remember, who's, who's saying, who's speaking here is, is God. So, you're, it's, it's, so, to the son of, to, to, so to the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, this little picture of the mind-blowing Trinity, but this is probably the most direct proclamation of Jesus' deity in the New Testament. This is God the Father saying to God the Son, your throne, O God, will last forever. The next, uh, further on down, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. Jesus is eternal. (laughs) He is God. He has authority. It shows us the, the angels, they worship and serve God. Jesus is God who reigns for all eternity with all authority. Let me say that again. The angels worship and serve God. Jesus is God 
who reigns for all eternity and with all authority. To put it another way, he's better. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, we see Jesus is superior to the angels because his position is higher than theirs. So he's, he's contrasting the, the position of the Son with the position of the angels. Let's read that, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So it's another rhetorical question. He begins with rhetorical questions. He ends with a rhetorical question. It's a technique to just kind of bookend his thoughts, this section. And, and again, they're meant to be obvious. To no angel has, has God ever said this to. It's only to the Son. It's only to Jesus does he say, sit at my right hand until I make, an, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is, again, the, the, the climax of his argument here. He, he's doing the same thing in this section as he did in the previous section. Okay, the previous section, he's saying Jesus is, is the better way that God has spoken. Here's seven reasons why Jesus is better. He's the heir. He's the creator. He's the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe. He's, he's building and he climaxes by saying Jesus sits at the right hand of God in, on high. And he does the same thing here. Hey, Jesus is better than the angels. Here's seven reasons why that's true. And then he crescendos by pointing to Jesus' honor and his status at the right hand of God. Look at his position. And then he contrasts that by pointing out the angels' position. He says, are they, the angels, not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Jesus position is he sits on the throne, this throne that will endure forever. The angels, on the other hand, are sent out from the, the throne to serve, to, to ministering spirits sent out to serve us, which is bonkers. F.F. Bruce wrote, I love this, he says, the most exalted angels are those whose privilege it is to stand in the presence of God, like Gabriel, but none of them has ever been invited to sit before him still less to sit in the place of unique honor at his right hand. There's been one person he's, he's invited to do that for. That's Jesus. It's a pretty contrasting position, isn't it? At church, the, Jesus is, is better than the angels. He's far superior to them because he has been declared to be son of God in power because the angels serve and worship him while he reigns forever and with all authority. He's better because he sits on the throne while they are sent out to serve. Jesus is better than the angels. I realize that sounds maybe a bit basic for a lot of people in the room. Like, of, of course he is. Um, of course Maybe we're not veering on angel worship. Maybe, maybe you are, but I, I bet most of us aren't. Kind of Western Protestant Christians, we do have a, a healthy, man, it's all about Jesus, it's all about what he's done for us. Angels, yeah, that's fine. But declaring that message that Jesus is 
supreme over all creation. And you should never become tired of that. That should be the, the, the cry of your heart and your lips every single day. I, I, I was trying to think even, what's the, what's the application here? Um, and, and I'm trying to think, what would, what would the author, what would he write to us in our context? What, what would he be saying, hey, Jesus is better than this for us? It may not, it may, he may or may not mention angels, um, but I believe his message would be the exact same, that whatever that is for you, Jesus is better than it. He's more supreme than that thing, than that person. Fill your heart with that. Um, today, go back after, go back this afternoon, go have your tea. Um, when you sit down, go back and read chapter one of Hebrews and, and, and just marvel at this magnificent Jesus that he has talked about. The Son of God, all he's done, all he is, who's declared Lord of all. Does he sit on the throne for you? Does, 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 does he have that supremacy for you over everything in your life? There's only one way to, to have those greater affections for Jesus in that way, and that's to be with him. You can't just, yes, Jesus is going to be supreme for me. It, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Um, Lucas always talked about uh, 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 Marcus Chalmers has a, um, a sermon called the, the, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection, that whatever is holding your greatest affections in life, the only, the only solution to, to Jesus becoming better than that is to have a, a greater affection for Jesus. It's not going to be just head knowledge. It's going to be being with him, filling your heart and your mind with, with who he is, abiding with him daily. That's how your affections are going to grow. That's how you're going to have a, a greater uh, picture of who Jesus is. That's how he becomes more supreme over whatever else is in your heart. Uh, let's stand and, and we're going to pray. Uh, God, again, we thank you for speaking to us. We didn't deserve to hear your voice. Uh, we thank you for Jesus, for sending your Son to reveal fully who you are. How amazing is that, that we get to know who you are, what you're like, what you care about, because we have Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for loving us. Um, we thank you for leaving the heavenly realms to come and be one of us, to enter into our filth, to become lowly, to serve, to be obedient to the point of death so that we can be counted as righteous, so that we can actually know you, we actually be near the Father. Um, Lord, never let us forget that message of the gospel. Help us to preach that to our hearts daily. And Jesus, you are supreme over all. You are better than everything and everyone. We thank you, Lord, that because of you, because of what you've done, that we get to be counted as part of the kingdom, this kingdom that will never end, that we now have a future that is eternal, that doesn't end, because we are in Christ. 
We get to be co-heirs with you, Jesus. May that blow us away again, Lord. Increase our affections for you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.